Welcome to So-and-So, brought to you by Bernina, made to create. I'm Meg Goodman, and you're about to enjoy a casual conversation with a special member of the Soist community. A conversation about how they got started, what inspires them, what excites them, and their connection to this community. Our guest today is Emily Blumenthal, founder of the Handbag Awards and Handbag Designer 101, the book, the podcast, and masterclass. We're actually going to kind of take a, a right turn on this one and not really talk about sewing. We're going to talk about designing. Emily is known as the handbag fairy godmother, and her dedication has prompted collaborations between emerging talent and brands like Swarovski, Timberland, Kate Spade, Kenneth Cole, Fujifilm, Yes, Nine West, and Nasty Gal as well as with retailers like Saks Fifth Avenue, Bloomingdale's, Neiman Marcus, QVC, Evine Live, and Macy's, to name a few. She's been featured multiple times in InStyle Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, The Associated Press, The Today Show, and The New York Times, and her book, Handbag Designer 101, has sold over 50,000 copies. She hosts the Handbag Designer 101 podcast, so it's nice to have a fellow podcaster with us today. She founded the Handbag Awards National Handbag Designer Day and is a professor of entrepreneurship at the Fashion Institute of Merchandising. Emily was born and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, and currently makes her home in the Lower East Side of New York with many humans and a furry critter. Emily, I'm I'm worn out just talking about everything that you do. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, man, I am here for it. I'm excited. And, you know, a fun fact about a bio from uh, the class I teach, and it's FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, not to be overlapped with Laboratory Institute of Merchandising, where I'd also had taught in the past. Sure. When you go around the room and ask people to tell a little bit about themselves by person six, they're talking about what they've accomplished in middle school. So I can't really like, you know, it's it's like Sophie's choice. Like, what do I delete out of the bio to make it shorter? I'm like, we'll just keep adding on comma, comma, comma. <laughs> Why not? You know? <laughs> well, if you've if you've done it, flaunt it, right? Why not? Absolutely. I'm here for that. So, so you were talking about middle school when people go around the room. So I'm, I'm actually going to take you back there. Tell us about your childhood and how you became interested in being a creator. I think if you have entrepreneurial parents, you have absolutely no choice but to think about what you could do to make your own money one way or another. And I think, you know, entrepreneur is such a funny word and it's kind of like what marketing used to be. It's an ambiguous term. It could mean basically anything at this point. Like you can roll out of bed and start have an idea and then just call yourself an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have always essentially worked for myself. I've always had things going on the side, making money, whether it was selling shells or babysitting or, you know, riding my bike and delivering things for people. Like any way I could make money, I just did it never even dawned on me, you know, never had a term as entrepreneur, but working really, really hard to get these really coveted jobs and realizing as an adult, what ADHD is and how that (laughs) can empower you and also be a hindrance, but it also allows you to have a very low threshold of risk 
and not think twice about doing things. And if you make mistakes, you're really, you're capable of compartmentalizing them and moving forward saying, okay, that didn't work next. What else can we do? How do we pivot? So I think that in itself is a blessing and curse because Mm -hmm. not much can stop you when things don't go right. So you you mentioned your parents. Yes. Um, Who else was an influence on you through this process? I mean, I I am Garmento offspring. My father worked in the Garmin Center. My mom started her own uh, sweatshirt designing business, and uh, which you know she so thoughtfully said that that's what paid for all of our family vacations because she did so well doing that. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, on weekends she would always be like paint, literally painting these sweatshirts, and they became the a gift in the neighborhood that people would give. It was kids' names and, you know, putting animals and characters and so forth. And it, literally everybody in my family has their own business. So I don't think there was a way out of that being what my path would be one mm-hmm. way or another. Mm-hmm. So so taking risk was just just part of your everyday life. I don't even think it was so much risk. I think everyone in my family was much more calculated than I am. I think Mm, anything, mm -hmm. once you cross over into design and fashion, which is an uncontrolled beast, I I think that in itself is a risk going into anything creative. And, you know, my sister's a lawyer. My dad was a, you know, a garmento. It was all about, he was a converter, which he would buy fabric in its raw form and then sell it to, sell it to retail or wholesale, I guess that's what mm-hmm. it would be, but that's all very controlled. So if you're going to start your own brand and your label, that, that is a, that is the wild West for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. So, so you did a lot of things to, to make money, as you said, tell us about some of your first creations. Um, I don't think it was so much me making things. It was like finding things and how can I sell them and recognizing that if, you know, and I teach so much of this that it's great to have an idea and it's great to be creative, but if people aren't buying it, what do you need to do next? And I've done enough trade shows standing there selling, having my bags there and having done tons of money, designing the booth, making sure there are enough bags, having copies of my line sheets printed out, and then it's crickets. It's like, you know, that's the time to go back and think you know, am I a hobby or am I a business? And if I'm a hobby, this is a very, very expensive hobby. So, mm-hmm. you know, designing shells and putting googly eyes on it at a, at a summer house, that made money. I was able to realize how much people would pay. And, you know, I made some good money over the summers doing that, but I was little and, you know, and made my mom drive me to go buy the googly eyes, but the time spent putting the eyes on the shells and everything like that took time and the time value of money back then, I probably should have realized that it was probably costing me more than whatever I was making. Sure. So, so why handbags? Um, not on purpose by any stretch. Um, I, it's, it's a story I've told it's in my book, I think at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I was getting my MBA and um, I was going to work and going to school. And at the time, my boyfriend was Australian. Well, he's still Australian, but he's not my boyfriend anymore. Um, He was a DJ. And so I was with him 24-7. 
making sure that he was getting gigs because I then became his unofficial manager, which is something I didn't want. Um, and I was watching women dance around their handbags and worrying about them getting stolen. And little by little, it was like, how come no one created a, a handbag to hold on to when you go out? And that was really the inception story of what was my Yasmina bag at the time mm -hmm. in 2000. <laughs> just a few years ago vintage so, so, vintage vintage i i like the idea of uh, vintage yes yeah, it does it does exactly qualify um i like the idea of a purse you don't have to to watch when you go out i'll, I'll take two of those um so talk about your design process how does this happen so uh kate spade was still alive at the time and um she was not a designer by trade. And having just interviewed Elise Ahrens, her partner, it's funny um, because she she went into creating her brand with someone, with her husband, boyfriend at the time, who was in media, who could help develop a brand message and a brand identity. And also Elise, who was uh, in retail, um, Kate was... Uh, in media. I think she was at Bazaar. So they went in with all contacts and um, tentacles, if you will, already in place to try and get a bag going. I, of course, read her one story and was like, oh yeah, me too. I can do this by myself. And she had done her first silhouette out of construction paper. So that's what I did. Um, I cut it out. I glued it, the whole thing. I bought beads. I figured this is what it could look like. And you know, sometimes naivete is 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 your best mechanism of saying, "Oh yeah, this will work." <laughs> you know? Oh sure, me too. But I knew that um, I knew if it was going to be on the wrist, it had to be jewelry, it had to be something fashionable. And then I said, "Okay, what is my point of differentiation, or my unique selling point, or my USP?" So I came up with this extra little ring at the bottom that would almost make it look like a like an udder if you were drawing it, I guess. And so it would go around your wrist and there was a finger loop at the end. And for no particular reason whatsoever, I thought that it should be patented. Now, again, not knowing anything about IP or intellectual property, I threw myself into that and learning about, you know, almost forced myself into learning the history of the handbag and trying to teach myself that everything I created answer to why. Now, I didn't do it as efficiently as I would have liked to, but hindsight is what it is. Um, and learning about, okay, what would this bag look like? What are the origins of the bag? Why would this bag work? And also learning, why isn't something like this on the market already? And if it has been, what did it look like? And um, I think that's a lot of lessons just choked into one sentence because what I teach my students that I teach entrepreneurship at FIT, I've been there, I think for 10 years is if something isn't on the market and you want to be so quick to call it an innovator or a disruptor, chances are it's been done already. Mm -hmm. And if it has been done, why didn't it work? And if it didn't work, what can you do to make it work that will allow yourself to have it be profitable in a sooner than later form mm -hmm. because there've been tons of wristlets. There've been tons of belt bags before the bum bag or the crossbody bag that 
everyone's seen that Uniqlo is doing and Lululemon is done that have been knocked off time and time again. Um, but what would this bag be that would be its point of differentiation that would allow it to be something that I could sell and has has a potential to become a a handbag brand that could capture my target at the point at that point was women who go out younger women, metropolitan women who go out, who probably weren't driving um, and trying to understand the ethnography of my customer, meaning what does she eat? What does she wear? What car does she drive? Does she drive a car? Does What does she have for breakfast? And that would all go down to what is she carrying in her bag, which would essentially impact how I was designing the product. And at the time, there were flip phones. <laughs> Not to date myself, but there were flip phones and they were very tiny. So that worked out great. So in sure. this said little bag I was developing, I could have my keys, you could have a lipstick, you could have a credit card, you could have some cash and your phone, which essentially was everything one needed to go out. So that was truly what impacted the design process. And it also allowed me when I was meeting with a, um, with a patent attorney for the first time, number one, to explain to them, did they have a rate for someone like me with no budget and um, no real experience, but knew I had something from the research I had already done? And number two, was this something that was that had the potential to be protected and knowing, learning and teaching myself the difference between a utility patent versus a design patent, utility meaning how it's, how the item is being used, you know, like you're like, it, hypothetically, if you were going to get a patent on keys, it's how the key would go in the keyhole um, to open the door, as opposed to a design patent would be what are the design uh, edges around the key that are unique that haven't been done before. Again, this is loosely placed and I am not a, an attorney. If you meet any attorney, the first thing they'll say is, this is not what I practice. This is my personal opinion. So that's just, that's just a loose explanation. Mm -hmm. So I then went ahead and spent my savings and patented my silhouettes and had three versions. One, of course, died because you just have to assume whatever you create, one of them just isn't going to work. And that's how I pushed forward mm -hmm. in the loosest form. Well, now you, you've been involved, in, and we talked about this in the, the intro with myriad designer brands. Is, is there a difference in, in working with some of them? And if so, tell us about that. No, they're all exactly the same. Okay. 100%. <laughs> <Okay>. I think <laughs> 100%. I think um, it comes down to um, experience and how many times said individual has been knocked down, but I call it basement to Beyonce, where um, a creator who gets a little bit of attention all of a sudden assumes that all bets are off on them, all rules don't apply to them, that they can charge whatever they want for their item and people and as, they assume that their customer or a potential customer will not only follow them but would be willing to part with um a retail amount meaning what you're charging the customer whether it's d to c direct to consumer or what it's going to be sold at a department store boutique and so forth um will be significantly more than what their theoretical competition would be charging. 
Mm-hmm. So it's so, so, so important to do. I mean, I always tell people before you even design a thing, do your homework, design into what your customers' needs are, and then put your spin on it, not the other way around. Because again, if you're a hobby, it's one thing that's great. You can add as many ruffles and whatever and charge whatever you want for your friends and family. But if you want to grow this to scale, then you have to take all these points into consideration and really, really understand what your competition is about, what they're charging, how they're charging, and where they're sold, and do a deeper dive into absolutely everything and anything they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where this, you know, sexy SWOT analysis comes into like the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of what else is on the market to see where you fit in and where those opportunities truly lie. You do a lot of work with the investment community to understand handbag trends, answer calls from retailers on, and I'm going to quote you here, which designers uh, want to know what they should carry next. <laughs> um, and I think you just talked about that. Is is there, I mean, it's, it's such um, brilliant marketing research. Um, is, is there more that you do or is this pretty much your, your formula uh, for advising people? I mean, it's it's a twofold, depending, of course, like me, who my who my target customer is, and if I'm speaking to um, investment brands, companies, what have you, banks, so forth, and they quote unquote cover those brands to understand market trends. Um, it's it's very very different than if I'm talking to an independent designer who wants to know how to grow their brand. Um, and there's so many really interesting nuances that I think, um, need to be taken into consideration, like even to dictate where the market's going. Like, for example, um, if hobos are back, right? Hobo bags are soft, they're oversized, they lack structure, they lack compartments. They're really a hot mess of a bag, but they're really cool to wear, um, when bags like that are on trend, the socioeconomic and psychological connection to a bag like that means that we as customers are okay carrying something that lacks structure, that lacks organization. We're okay with things being all over the place. We're comfortable. We're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Our purse strings really aren't tightened so much. They're just not. Because if you're committing to carrying something that's that won't keep things in order, then you're okay with things not being in order, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If uh, And that goes even further to color in collections. Color is expensive. Lab dipping is expensive. And if you are investing, and this goes for smaller brands too, adding color to your collection or your assortment, well, you have to be able to charge your customer the exact same amount for the purple and the canary yellow bag than you would for the black bag, the brown bag, or the oxblood red bag. Ox, oxblood red bag. Mm-hmm. Why? Because your customer isn't going to pay more because it's a pop of color. But on your end, you're going to be charged more because you're buying less of that material. So if a brand can afford to have pops of color within their assortment or within their collection, chances are they're doing well enough to do that or they're not paying attention to their bottom line. So there's all these 
interesting nuances that, you know, having a canary yellow bag added to a collection or an assortment, what that means on a larger level. And it's just things like that to take into consideration if you're going to invest in a brand or invest in a business or want to develop a line. Mm-hmm. It's, it's those kinds of points that, again, I, I created a masterclass. I, I actually just had a, um, had an, a handbag designer incubator. And that was my aha moment that I'm reteaching the same information more or less that I do in my university class. And so many of these designers who've been in business and doing pretty well, how little they were aware of understanding their customer. And everybody assumes, and this is just across the board, that their customer is this very chic, metropolitan, cool woman um, or somebody perhaps who identifies as a woman who is just dying to carry their bag. And the reality is that typically their customer is perhaps someone who is of a larger size, lives in a smaller town. And if you want to get into the weeds of it, the town itself has a church, a stop sign, a Walmart, and a bar and a school. And they just wanted to buy something to make them feel pretty or make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really taking a deeper dive of what this customer is about, it empowers designers and creators to make something that is made to sell. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to sacrifice your creativity. I think if anything, I think that enhances what you can do because you know within the confines and constraints you're working in and working under to know this is how far I can go. And like if I'm designing a drawstring bag or knitted bag or hand-sewn bag, and I know my customer is someone older who appreciates craft or handmade bags, I need to know that the lining or interior of my bag needs to be a brighter color because typically she wears glasses. She can't see it without her glasses. So the last thing you want to do is sell her a bag that has a black or dark lining, which you think would be better because it doesn't show stains. But guess what? She can't find anything in it anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's these little details that I think it's just so very important. And that's why I created this masterclass because... I want to make sure people are going to make things. They should make them to sell. Otherwise, it's kind of like this big letdown after you put so much time, effort, and energy into making something beautiful that you can't really do anything with it. So all of this um, ties back to your experience about what to do after you've sewn, designed, or created that bag. And I, I believe you call it the what now moment. Yep. Uh, and how to turn hobbies into viable businesses and all of these many, many things that people just don't think about because they just want to create something beautiful, but to sell it is a whole different ballgame. 100%. Emily, you're a podcaster. Uh, and um, so- We like to talk, don't we, We Meg? like to talk. Um, so uh, t- tell us about your show. What's its premise? Um, tell us about some of your guests. So fun fact, it's called Handbag Designer 101 also. You know, if you if you've got an IP, if you got a brand, you might as well just call everything that. It helps people find you. So why not? Um, and the essence is, and it goes back to what the DNA of what my book was about. It's how to understand designing, making, and marketing handbags, and it's it's peripheral in the sense that um, we've talked spoken to uh, some celebrity stylists. Um, some stylists who's even worked on, who've worked on TV shows, 
how they pull handbags. And then they even go back to like, then how to design for their celebrity clients, um, for their closets. Uh, we've spoken to a lot of independent designers uh, about their journeys and some of whom are all over the world. And it's so fascinating to hear their stories and recognizing that they've realized that there was there was a lack in domestic production. So then they're trying to empower their own local communities to create. So then they can create handbags there. Um, we have spoken to incredible established brands and designers, uh, Elise Ahrens, who's the creator and the co-founder of Kate Spade, who's now the co-founder and creator of Francis Valentine, um, Rebecca Minkoff. Um, we have another amazing woman, uh, Sarah Colonna, who is a, a comedian and a New York Times bestseller, but she also, um, her husband's a football player. And this is where all of these incredible ideas find their start, where going to football games and present and, and um, speaking on stage and realizing that more and more stadiums and theaters have guidelines in terms of handbags that they'll allow in. So as a result of finding a need, she created a handbag brand that were stadium approved. And it's stories like that, that, you know, yes, they are all about handbags, but they're truly all about creators and their stories and what happened and how to fail forward and to turn whatever you're creating into something that has the potential to truly be a viable brand and business. And that's called Handbag Designer 101, and people can find that wherever they get their podcasts. Absolutely. So why are you called the Handbag Fairy Godmother? Because the New York Times called me that. And why did they call you that? (laughs) 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 Well, if the New York Times is going to call you that, you're going to go with it, right? Well, it's better than being called a lot of other things, let's be honest, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, I created something called the Handbag Awards, the Independent Handbag Designer Awards in 2007, and it ran for almost 15 years. And it may or may not make a comeback, but throughout that process, we had thousands of applicants every year, and that's not even being um, dramatic. I mean, it was true. Um, We worked with every single design university. We had all those great brands you referenced at the beginning, that was, I mean, my background was in media and partnerships. And if you're creating an award show, a fun fact, you need someone to pay for it. So, um, cause you don't want to, nor should you. And that goes back to, if you're doing something creative, someone should be funding it one way or another. So I came up with this idea, knowing how large the handbag market and community was of having done so many trade shows by myself and seeing how many people were there. I mean, it's not the case now, but that's what it was in the early 2000s. And um, I saw that there was a need and a platform for designers to be discovered. And there was a gap in the market. And I was newly married and pregnant with my first child. And I was waiting for my book to come out. And my agent had said, you need something else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. After my uh, third licensing deal turned into a disaster. And again, that's just cost of doing business and learning how to run your brand. And without those patents, I wouldn't have been able to have any licensing. So I I knocked myself off 
before anybody else did thinking, well, if someone was going to do it because it was a kitsch concept, I should do it before anybody else. That's also something to think about. Like if you know that your product has the, if is your product is so expensive and it can be done at a mass level, then do it yourself and call it something adjacent to the original name. And guess what? They'll buy it from you before anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this idea for an award show and um, came up with all these categories that were basically the same for the full 14 years. And um, it turned out to be this large scale, 500 person in person global event. And we discovered tons and tons of talent. And what I did with each category is that the prize was a collaboration, a limited edition bag, a guest designership, an apprenticeship. And through that, the amount of talent that came through was insane because, you know, I've written visas for, I can't even tell you how many designers who are coming to the States as a result of the awards. So I think as a byproduct of working with so many designers personally and having had some sort of communication with I'd say at least 8,000 designers over the past 15 years at a minimum. I think that name, that's, that's where it came from because I try to give everybody some time to at least hear where they're going through in some sort of direction, which then goes back to why I created the masterclass because so many mistakes have been made and why should they? If you could take a class, because that does not exist. There's tons and tons of classes on YouTube, how to sew a bag, how to make a bag, how to craft a bag. And truth be told, in my in my book, where I have a handbag silhouette directory and anatomy of a handbag, no one teaches you that. Um, the craft section was a was part of my book deal. And I said, I don't do this. So I had to outsource. And mm-hmm. I just want to clear something up that the publisher um, went to print And uh, there was a typo in the first run of the book because the patterns were supposed to be fold out or they were supposed to be big that you Mm -hmm. could fold them out. And it said for every single handbag pattern, increase the size 200%. And without these patterns being, you know, having the ability to fold out and be actual size, if you increase the size of a eight and a half by 11 pattern, you're you're basically going to be left with an American girl size handbag. So I got railed for that with my very first book when they rushed to print it because there was such a demand. And I'm like, oh my God. So I had to fight them to have a second print and uh, I had to have the patterns all redone. So I had to personally reach out to every, it was like a Yelp review. I reached out to every single person who wrote a review saying, I know there was an error. It was a printing error by the publisher. Here are the actual patterns. Please use these instead. Mm -hmm. I did my best to do that. But, you know, again, cost of doing business. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Now you talked about um, your handbag designer awards and thousands of people came through this. Many up and comers have been identified and gone on to some some pretty amazing careers. Mm. Can you tell us about a few of them? Uh, Brandon Blackwood, he was one. Amy Kestenberg was another. Uh, there's an incredible vegan designer called Sugand Agrawal. She's the first South Asian designer, vegan designer that's been carried by Macy's. Um, and then I have several designers who are now heads of design from many major fashion brands purely as a result of the opportunities that they got from being recognized. I mean, mm-hmm. 
if you're a design student and created a bag, how many people are going to be vying for you to hire you? That doesn't exist. It's like a mm-hmm. first round draft pick, but for handbags. So that's essentially what, what it was about. I like that first round draft pick. That's um, what it was. Emily, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. And I want to talk about one of your passions, which is kidpreneurship um, and Savvy Susanna. Yes. So I will, I, will you tell us uh, what these are and, and why they're so important to you? Uh, well, I've had, I've had some offspring, um, three of which, uh, and I came up with this idea. Mind you, I've been adjuncting, which I've turned into a gerund adjuncting. I've been teaching. <laughs> why not? I've never heard that before, but I, I like j- it. I just made it up. I mean, maybe it existed, but why not? I'll own that too. But for when I was finishing my MBA, uh, the Laboratory Institute of Merchandising, it's now called LIM College, they had approached me to teach. And I thought that was hilarious while I was finishing my master's that they wanted me to teach a class. But I was like, sure, man, I'll do it. Um, because I had um, I taught a class on how to launch your handbag line, which was actually the nascent stages of what my book was about through uh, this learning annex. And I don't know, this will date me too. I don't know if you remember, but these little things that were outside on the street where you could just take a class. There was a, a Sex in the City episode about that where Carrie taught people how to date. Mm-hmm. But I, one of the booklets I was on, Donald Trump was on the cover where it said, I'll teach you how to learn about real estate. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if that's dating me, but that should. Um, but I started teaching. And the first thing I taught was uh, fashion PR. And then I was at Parsons teaching fashion marketing. And then I've been at uh, FIT teaching entrepreneurship. But one of the tenets of what I truly believe is there's a lack of understanding with kids that, yes, it's wonderful. Follow your dreams. Yes, it's great. Everything you make is amazing. You know, everybody gets a prize, blah, blah, blah. But that's just not the reality. So I used to, um, I don't believe in giving kids allowances. That always bothered me. Um, Because if they're getting an allowance, so should I. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like, I'll give Mm -hmm. you a bill for dinner. Thanks. Uh, Where's my tip? So I always believe that, you know, I I have it with my my older kids that if you're not going to do a sport, then you need to have a job. and understanding what money is about and how much things cost. And again, if you're going to create something, you need to know what your value is and real value and um, what that looks like. So if you're going to create something, how much did it cost you to buy the, um, to buy the glue, to buy the paper, to buy all of that, to buy the paint? Um, and I think. It's something that a lot of parents don't understand saying, oh, it's so wonderful they made this, but like, how much did you spend for them to make it? And it's great that they're selling it, but who bought, who bought Mm -hmm. the supplies? How much did those Mm -hmm. supplies cost you? So I had written uh, a book um, called Savvy Susanna and Her Amazing Adventures in Handbags to, it's a fiction, a kid fiction book, but to speak about, and I think it should be coming out in the next month or so, but it's truly about empowering kids that if they're going to run these businesses to have them take stock in what's being made and to empower them to make their own money 
And um, if they make something on their own and it falls apart, those are great lessons and Mm -hmm. how they can continue to capture our customer audience with some of the money that they've earned to try and do something better. So what's next for you? What's your dream? Oh, God. (laughs) To have an out-of-the-office email. I want an OOO email. That's what I want. (laughs) I fantasize about that. Uh Like not to be on my phone 24-7. And I think, you know, when you work for yourself, it's, it's just a byproduct that theoretically you're always working and you're trying to figure out what you should be doing. Um, but I, there, there's some big things coming in within the space of handbags that um, hopefully will be out by the end of 2024 that have been what seems like a million years in the making to, to try and get them going. But mm-hmm. this is my platform. These are my people. And I encourage all handbag designers to, to come to us if they want to learn more, if they want to, and I, I'm not plugging myself, but I kind of am, but it's just, I, I really, really implore you if you are going to create something, whether it's sewn, crocheted, hand knit, you're buying leather skins or you're, you know, by the yard or you're buying, um, uh, by the square foot, excuse me. Um, and, or you're buying like a drum of PU, which is, fake leather, which they say is, um, which they say is vegan, but really isn't because of the chemicals that it emits, Mm -hmm. um, another conversation, but to really take stock in terms of how much you're spending for the supplies and the time value of money you're putting into it. And again, if you're making something, a costume for your child, that's wonderful. Then, you know, that's, that's your ROI. That's your return on investment. It's to see something beautiful, the the happiness, the pictures. But if you are making something and you have this notion that you could turn it into a business, then you really, really need to take stock on so much more than just the finished product, because the finished product is just a small piece of that puzzle of of converting your idea slash hobby into a brand and in business. Mm -hmm. In our conversation today, we talked about a lot. Is there any question I didn't ask you you wish I had? Um, I, I loved working with Bernina through the awards. I love, I love how they have a, an array of sewing machines. I love how they create. It's called Burnett, I think. They're a lesser priced one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I, again, I think if you are going to create something, just truly think about the bigger picture. and. You know, I I implore people that if you're going to start sketching or mocking and getting excited about videos that you've seen or the social or the process of how something is made and as wackadoo as it is to really, really look at everything. Who is this customer that is going to buy it? And to take into consideration, if you think someone's going to buy it, can they afford to spend the money that you want to smack a price on it? Because nine times out of 10, they cannot. Mm-hmm. So if, if our listeners do want to reach out to you, what's the, the best way for them to do that? I am the only at handbag designer for everything. Okay. <laughs> you do own the brand. I mean, <laughs> look, if I'm, I'm wearing it on a necklace, actually. But uh-huh. uh, FYI, on, on Facebook, it's HBD 101 because someone ruthlessly got it before me. But yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm here for it. Emily, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Meg. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. I, I've, it, it has been a masterclass, and I thank you for that. <laughs> 
And there you have it. Another story about someone just like you, someone for whom creating is so much more than a hobby. It's a way of life. It's a connection to something bigger. If you know someone you think has an outstanding story, a story that should be shared on this podcast, please drop me a note to meg at soandsopodcast.com or complete the form on our website. Be sure to subscribe to, review, and rate this podcast on your favorite platform and visit our website, soandsopodcast.com for more information about today's and all of our guests. That's S-E-W-A-N-D-S-O podcast.com. And finally, I want to thank Bernina for making this program possible. I'm Meg Goodman, and I look forward to you joining us next time on So and So.